This week, I was forced to dress up like a dead woman and developed a fear of heights. Because this week, we watched Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, a show where we watch movies some of us missed the first time around. I'm Evan Toller-Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Chris DeShane. This week, we got around to watching... Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 classic Vertigo, starring Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. Now, this movie has been called Alfred Hitchcock's Masterpiece. It has been rated as one of the best movies of all time. It is on the AFI Top 100 American Movies list. Chris, how did you miss this? I okay, so I missed this. Um, well, because it was number one out before I was born and re-released when I was a child. Um, I've gone back since and watched some of Alfred Hitchcock's other movies. You know, like I've seen Psycho, I've seen The Birds, like some of these ones that maybe have a little bit more. Um, I don't know uh, cultural awareness for mm-hmm. most moviegoers, um, but I've never seen this. And then it's only been in the last uh, you know few years that I've become aware of just how um, well regarded this movie is, despite kind of most I think uh, most kind of casual movie watchers not really being aware of it. So this was a movie I was excited to uh, get around to to see if it's kind of you know as as. Uh, Good as it seems to be regarded by, you know, professional movie people. Michael, how about you? So I mentioned before, I grew up in Sweden. In Sweden, we had two channels. And what the a very important aspect of that was that when uh, an American movie would be on, you watch the movie. It doesn't matter what it is. You just watch it because it was American. So by definition, you had to watch it. So we watched every uh, Hitchcock movie. Uh, everything made released ever and the rule was you watch half of it uh, just to make sure it was good and then by the time you watched half of it if it wasn't good you were like well we watched half of it so let's watch the rest so i've watched all of the hitchcock movies um from you know during my formative years so i'd watched this precisely once and uh my memories of it were very different from when i saw it again so i i really look forward to talking how old about were you when you where saw that's it? different I'm guessing. Okay. 10. Whoa. Wow. Okay. I was uh, I was 20 when I saw this movie uh, and uh, watched it two or three times within a space of uh, two or three weeks. Um, we uh, were myself and and uh, my roommates were in a film course and. Um, we had watched Psycho during that that film course, and then we're like, "Whoa, okay, we really need to like go and check out the other Hitchcock films." It was the first time that that any of us had seen Psycho um, from beginning to end, and and you have expectations of these films because they are so kind of ensconced in pop culture, like you were saying, Chris, and yeah. and then you realize, oh, there are twists in there that that you know, you, you don't know. And, uh, and so we checked out North by Northwest and, and the birds vertigo and rear window and, um, just really went on this like Hitchcock binge. And yet watching this movie for the podcast, I realized I didn't remember almost 
any of it. But, you know, just to, to give a little background on this, you know, this is in the middle of Hitchcock's like crazy massive run. So Vertigo's 1958. In 1954, he does Dial M for Murder and Rear Window. 1955, To Catch a Thief and The Trouble with Harry, which is, you know, definitely one that kind of uh, a sleeper one. Uh, 1956, The Man Who Knew Too Much and The Wrong Man. 1958, Vertigo. 1959, North by Northwest. 1960, Psycho. 1963, The Birds. And so, like, that's that's huge. He is he is crushing it in Hollywood at the time. And he's got Jimmy Stewart in the lead on this, uh, who he had worked with multiple times before. And uh, and Kim Novak uh, making her sort of Hitchcock debut or her only Hitchcock uh, film here as, as the uh, leading lady. Um, you know, this movie underperformed, shall we say? You know, Chris... Um, you know, what would you say the initial reception to this film was? Yeah, well, it's it's I mean, it's an interesting point because the four of the movies you just listed now have an amazing view on them. Right. Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest and Psycho are all on um, the American Film Institute's top 100 movies. But. Uh, those have all crept up over time. And Vertigo was one of the ones that wasn't initially on most people's list because the initial reaction was was bad. Uh, like most people did not like it. it. It it made back its money. It had an OK box office. It made about um, eight million bucks um, when it was released in 1958. It had a budget of two and two and a half million. But for for a Hitchcock movie. That wasn't great. It was definitely under expectation for what people had expected it to do. And a lot of that just came back to the initial reception of this was that it was like, nah, it's too long. It's too complex. It's too, you know, like winding of a, a story for what should be a straightforward um, thriller. And this thing doesn't really catch on until the 80s. Basically, um, Hitchcock bought back the rights to a lot of his movies in his lifetime. Uh, and when he died, um, his his estate sold the movie rights back to uh, Paramount. And then they re-released these movies in the 80s. And that's the point where the reputation really started to turn. Suddenly, people are seeing it again. They see this remastered version of it. And I think there's something to do with the, the, the distance between the original release uh, and having certain people um, like um, Scorsese and these other famous directors kind of hyping up all of Hitchcock's work as well. And I think we're going to talk about this. Maybe there's just a difference in in cultural acceptance or something that's kind of come into place over the the, the 30 years or whatever since it's, its initial release. But yeah, the initial reception was not great. It was pretty, pretty mediocre. And one of my favorite reviews that I was reading for it was um, the tagline was not so much who done it, but who cares? Wow. That <laughs> yeah. is, that's brutal. I mean, it's, it, is it any wonder Hitchcock himself got really angry around the film? Uh, you know, he blamed uh, Jimmy Stewart for the, the film's failure, saying that, that the age difference between him and Kim Novak, uh, you know, her, she was in her, her mid twenties, Jimmy Stewart in his fifties, uh, you know that 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 was the, uh, the you know the, the they they didn't make a believable couple and and all I can think of is like dude you cast them 
Yeah. Like that's not, that's not Jimmy Stewart's fault. Like that is squarely on your shoulders. You are looking for some kind of scapegoat here. So it's amazing to me that this movie that, that he got really upset about, uh, Bernard Herman, his, his composer, who is one of the, the true greats of the art came to hate his own score, uh, on vertigo. So like, you know, the heavies here really just like, denigrating this film and yet this film is the one that's like oh this this one this is hitchcock's masterpiece all right so i here's what i think it's like the it's it would be you know i really want to talk about this it, it would be wrong to just kind of blame it on any one thing because i think this movie works a hundred percent for me uh eighty uh, percent of the time and then something happens yeah. at the end and i think for me it falls apart but all these things that we've talked about actually click. They, they work really well. And then, you know, let's talk about the plot twist uh, later and things going on. But I actually think that it's a really, really good movie. And I'd forgotten the ending. So for me, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. And then uh, I didn't enjoy it so much. Um, so it, it's interesting. Right? Like, I, I'll look forward to hearing your takes on um, where you see well, that fall apart. I mean, apart. it's 93% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. 80% of the 80% time. 80% of the time. 93% <laughs> of the time, it's... 80% of the time, it's 93% of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Michael, uh, you know, are you happy you revisited this film? I'm really glad I rewatched it. Like, this was something that, you know, together with all the other Hitchcock movies, and particularly the, the Jimmy Stewart ones, that kind of, they, they were all in the same uh, grouping of movies that I thought these are really, really good. And so I was very much looking forward to um, watching it. And I'm glad I did. So Evan, I, I guess, same question to you. you th this is revisiting this one for you. What, what did you think uh, coming back and seeing this again? I'm really stoked that I revisited it, uh, especially because I'm looking at it now, knowing that this has been, uh, has become a, a, a truly vaunted film. And so it's really interesting coming back at it and looking at it and going like, okay, does, does masterpiece do, re, okay. Let's, let's see if, if Hitchcock's masterpiece truly is deserving of that name. I, I can tell you, um, watching it the first time for me was a little tough. Uh, I, in fact, fell asleep watching it for the first time. Uh, now, I think one of the upsides of, of doing this podcast with you guys, though, is I usually wind up watching these movies, you know, multiple times. You know, we always talk about the multiple cuts and edits and versions or whatever. So the, the, the interesting thing that happened for me was rewatching this movie um, and looking for entirely different things or noticing entirely different things than I noticed on the first pass. And I think that's where you start getting into the really fascinating part of this movie uh, and where I, my my appreciation uh, grew every time I watched this movie. And I think that's partly where you can see maybe why it had those poor initial reviews and why it grew over time. Because I, I, what I found was I liked this movie more uh, every time I saw it again. And so I, I don't know how I feel about it overall because the first watch was rough, uh, but like I think pretty highly of some of it, like Michael said, you know, 80% of the time 
it's a really great movie. Um, so I, I'm very happy I've seen it. I definitely think if you're um, intrigued to watch what's, you know, uh, an acclaimed piece of film history, it's definitely worth the watch. Uh, I would warn folks that maybe though you're going to need to watch it more than once uh, to get the, the, the appreciation or whatever out of it though. So that's, that was kind of my thinking, but maybe here's a good spot to uh, take a quick break. And on the other side, we can come back and dig into all those things. We thought about this. Welcome back. So we're going to get into details here about Vertigo and all the ins and outs of this movie. So spoilers ahead. Uh, If you don't want it ruined, that's coming any second. So uh, as a quick recap for everybody, what this movie is about. So uh, Scotty is an ex-cop with debilitating Vertigo. Uh, He's asked by an old friend to follow his wife, Madeline. So as Scotty becomes increasingly obsessed with her uh he begins to uncover this complex web of deception and intrigue that ultimately leads to a shocking conclusion so um i think we've already kind of touched on this in the intro um this is a movie that has a plot but i'm curious what both of you think about the um you know, the is this a coherent film narrative? Does this story stick together for each of you? I mean, uh, speaking as a writer, it's not the most cohesive plot. Uh, it takes some very strange turns. The pacing is really odd. Um, and yet it is compelling. It is a it is a very a uh, compelling story and maybe maybe a lot of that is tied into the actual cinematic narrative because i feel like as a piece of cinema the directing narrative the the shot narrative the the scoring narrative is all incredibly strong but the story itself is is uh, definitely to me the 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 weakest part of of the whole thing, but that because the other stuff is so great, it's kind of secondary. It's weird for me to say that. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm there with you too. Um, I, I think that's why I struggled watching it the first time is because you know it it the pacing is weird. There's long lulls, the twists. I wasn't like whoa. But rewatching it, um, you know, I was saying to to both of you before we started recording, too, it was like I found myself at points rewatching parts of it just with the sound off. Uh, And because it is such a a story told visually uh, and the more you start paying attention to that and the less attention you actually pay to the actual story that's being told, you get a lot more out of this movie. So the way things are shot, how, how people are framed, how they use colors and all those things that we'll get into. How about yourself, Michael? Did you find the, the I mean, I think you already told us up front, the story doesn't always stick together for you, but like, why, what was it about it for you? I would put it a little bit differently. I actually think if you summarize the plot, the plot is really interesting. I think that the, the core story that goes on here about the initial, um, 
ask the, the setup of his past, the friend that comes back in his life, what he has to go through, and then the, the twist. I actually think that that is a really, really clever story. Then we can talk about how was that executed? You know, was the, the twist at the very end? Was it well done, all that? But I actually think that the, the story and the plot itself, I think, is very good. I think that that you're right in that there is some very interesting stuff there. And I think that that this idea that uh, Scotty is lured into his friend's kind of world and plot by say by the the man saying you know my my wife is being possessed by a ghost is incredibly intriguing and that as a as audience members we can't help but be sucked into that also watching a hitchcock movie and suddenly it sounds like oh this is going to be like some kind of supernatural kind of film you know having not remembered what the plot of this movie was, I was like, ding, 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 ding. This, this sounds like it is going to be awesome. And, and in that we lean in the same way that Scotty leans in and we become complicit voyeurs in our own desire to learn the truth alongside Scotty, which is very, very Hitchcockian to make the audience complicit in voyeurism. That's like a total hallmark. And and I I really appreciated that. Yeah, well, and I think what's the right way to put this? I found the after the surprise is sprung and you find out that uh, she kills herself and, you know, falls off the, the bell tower and Scotty doesn't know what's going on. I found it an interesting spot to be in the movie, too, to be like, OK, wouldn't this normally be where the movie's done? But I know I still have 50 minutes left like oh there's an entire other movie that's about to happen and i don't know where this is headed now so like i found there's definitely some interesting twists and turns that are happening that being said it's not the i didn't find it was the same kind of um you know uh, uh payoff in some of those twists and turns as you might get in whatever you know like the usual suspects or uh the sixth sense or something like that where it's like oh these really pay off these really hit i found they were like oh okay like not not the big shocking twist or revelation that i think maybe maybe it would have been if you'd seen this in 1958 i don't know maybe maybe i'm jaded okay so i think you mentioned that but but i actually don't think that that this part is well written because yeah there's that there's 45 minutes to go but he doesn't realize the the big twist or it's not obvious until a little bit later down you might suspect, and you yourself might be like, oh, what's going on? But we're sort of supposed to believe that, you know, like there still is a coincidence, there's something going on. And then at the end, it feels incredibly rushed. So there's something there that I think uh, didn't work for me. And there's so many changes that happen to uh, James Stewart's character where you go, you just went from being sort of a nice uh, man helping out to being like really weird and creepy. And that not all of that can be explained away by 1958's mentality and kind of like how you did things. Uh, some of it's just odd. Yeah. So like, I don't think it is that. I think that there's a twist and then there's like a real well, turn. I found, right I found it end. that real turn didn't happen at the very end though, because when Madeline slash Judy, um, you know, when they, they meet again and whatever. And then she writes the like confession letter 
Exactly. Um, I found that to be very anticlimactic because you you find out 80% of the way through the movie what's actually happened, what the twist was. And then you're like, okay, there's still there's still half an hour left. So now what's going to happen? Yeah, I, uh, I feel like we need to, to let the people who haven't watched the movie, who are listening to this for uh, some reason, the twist <laughs> is that the woman that he thinks has killed herself, that he has fallen in love with, is actually still alive and that she was an actress playing the role of his old friend's wife so that his old friend could murder his wife and get away with it. Uh, and Jimmy Stewart comes across the woman who's who was playing that role and becomes completely obsessed with her. But, but yeah, I think that, that to your point, Chris, and, and to yours, Michael, that it, you know, I, I agree that, that, yeah, Jimmy Stewart doesn't realize till like five minutes from the end that he has been, uh, you know, completely obsessed with the actual woman that he was kind of in love with, uh, who was playing a different woman. Um, but the thing is, is that, as Chris mentioned, we as an audience know that. So that, that, uh, that that twist has happened to me. To me, it doesn't matter that Jimmy Stewart doesn't find out. If we, as the audience, know, then it's just the dramatic irony that we're following along this entire time, watching him try to turn the woman that he loved in back into the woman that he loved, which is so disturbing and gets so dark uh, and uncomfortable. And this is not your, this is not your, your, uh, you know, kind of, you know, friendly Jimmy Stewart. This is, this is a very, very broken, very mean and upsetting Jimmy Stewart. That one I think watching, I think that's, that's right. And I think, I think this kind of is where we pivot to like, you know, the plot and central narrative that carries it. Okay. That's one thing, but what, what is this movie really about? Right. And you already said it, Evan, it's like, it's a movie about, uh, you know, obsession and, um, you know, watching Jimmy Stewart go down this rabbit hole and then all the weird and creepy and whatever things that happen as a result of that. And, and, and so, I mean, I understand why you would structure the story in such a way. Cause okay, great. Like this isn't about the plot twist. This is about watching this creepiness happen. Right. Um, and so like, how maybe I'll ask the question this way. How creepy for each of you does Scotty get as this movie goes on? Uh, uh, upsetting. I mean, Michael, go ahead. I, I, I will I will put it on like uh, upsetting, deeply upsetting. I 100 percent agree. Like it goes from him being protective and wanting to do the right thing to being a really, really weird, uh, compulsive stalker type of person. The fact that he keeps seeing this person and doesn't actually recognize her face because he's just focused on all these other things like that is it's simultaneously insulting and creepy because he's just obsessed with the, the image of this person, not the actual person itself. And the fact that it's not just about, oh, could you uh, dye your hair blonde for me? It is, why didn't you uh, pin it up? exactly this way and this all of this stuff happens before he has even pieced it together to kind of see 
well, hang on, the necklace. Yeah. So to the listener, that necklace is a you know critical piece to uh, figuring out that, oh, no, you were in fact the person. All of this weirdness happens before he knows for a fact that she was the person uh, who had been he'd been obsessed with. So that is a very drastic, very rapid, very, very creepy uh, change uh, for Jimmy Stewart. And that to me is where I was like, hang on, like this, this is just bad. This would be like Psycho, but the movie isn't about Psycho. It's about to be this person who's really, really caring and cool and investigative and protective in terms of be like Norman Bates all along. Yeah, I mean, it. It is a psychodrama. Like it, tr- truly this movie is a psychodrama and and it rips the character of Scotty completely apart. And he is he is so gross at the end of it. It's just it's it, it is it is completely cringe inducing. It's uh, and I think it comes back to like, you know, the the subtext of the movie is what you're really supposed to be paying attention to. Right. Mm -hmm. Is this uh, obsessive behavior as this uh, man tries to reshape this this woman into what he has uh, fetishized fetishized that I can't say the word. You understand what I'm saying, though, Mm -hmm. Uh, throughout, um, you know, the entire first half or three quarters of this movie. And now he's trying to recreate this woman in the image of something that that he wanted and, and, and couldn't really have and so like that's what this movie ultimately becomes about and that's where i think it's easy to to have lost the trail where you're like i thought this was a movie about a killer or something it's like no 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 it's about this dude's descent into this creepy behavior and what does that tell us about um you know how he or alfred hitchcock or society is viewing um, you know, men's men's interactions or objectification of of women. And I mean, this is one of the interesting parts about this is, you know, this is a, a thing that Hitchcock was kind of notorious for doing Absolutely. to all of his leading ladies was, you know, like these uh, beautiful blonde women who he would then, um, you know, treat like crap. Uh, and, you know, there's all these quotes about him referring to um treating actors like cattle and, you know, all these very dismissive things and the way he would shape them and tell them how to behave and act on film. Like it's a, I mean, it's very meta movie that he's making almost about himself, um, which as you read into it is kind of fascinating and uh, an easy well to dig, dig uh, deeper into. Right. But at the same time, I, like it's, I don't think it's quite that simple because the, uh, the Midge character, uh, Barbara Bell Geddes, I think is brilliant. And I think that they have a really equal footing relationship. And maybe you would argue, well, it's because like he doesn't, he doesn't see her that way, but she's well-written. I think she acts really well. I think they have a believable I relationship. Agree. The same with uh, rear window. Like they, they have this terrific relationship, two characters that talk like real people. And it's got his obsession with someone that he only sees from across the the, the courtyard. So I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Like there's a really believable relationship in here, but then there's also this other one where he goes like, and it, it, like they never take the time to say, yeah, but wasn't she a victim here? Like she believed everything that this rich person told her, just do this for me one time. We're going to go, go away together. We'll do this. Uh, the second she does it, he's like, he takes off and she's left uh, on her own. Like she's a victim in her own right. And, and, I don't think that they really go into that 
And maybe that's like a 2023 uh, perspective. I don't know, but it's just it's no, interesting I think that, right? you're, that you're right, Michael. But I, I, I would argue that, you know, when it comes to the character of, of Midge and and Scotty, that Midge is very much set up as like the not hot version of uh, uh, of Madeline. You know, that's a Midge is also blonde. Uh, you know, they they uh, she paints herself into the the portrait of Carlotta um, that uh, that features so prominently in this movie. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that Jimmy Stewart had some uh, attraction to her earlier. Scotty had some attraction to her earlier. They had been engaged for like three weeks in college, but she broke it off. And, and, but he's he's not obsessed with her, and she becomes really upset about that. She becomes that sort of person holding a torch. Um, she just can't, and and I think that this comes back to Hitchcock's own eye towards women and beauty and the fetishization um, that that he has of of these stars that that he puts on on screen um, that the character of Midge just she's a Hitchcock six or whatever to to Novak's 10. Right. And yeah. And I think that that is that is made sort of pretty explicit in the way that that Jimmy Stewart really treats her like, you know, one of the guys, you know, kind of thing. I think I think to some degree for me, the the dialogue between those two characters, Midge and Scotty, is the most believable because um, he, he will never want her she isn't a an object of you know lust or whatever for him right and and i think that's why they're able to have these real dialogues but i also think it reflects the fact that she's a fully fleshed out woman capable intelligent has her own career you know like all these things um but to some degree you're also seeing a level of obsession playing out with her towards Mm -hmm. him right but you never see that returned in in any way at towards her because you know i think part of the point is um whether it's men in general or um you know hitchcock himself or whatever but lusting after this this um you know like barbie doll kind of ideal of a woman who isn't isn't necessarily thoughtful because i don't i don't think um Kim Novak's character has that many thoughtful lines in the movie she doesn't ne- necessarily seem to have like um you know, those, those insightful moments like Midge does, she's, she's a lust object and he's kind of throwing himself after her. Midge doesn't enter into that kind of equation, but is trying to get his attention, tries to do those things to get his attention in that way. And then it doesn't ever pay off. But I think this is maybe an interesting um, thing that comes up throughout the movie too, is this idea of your past uh, infiltrating your present. Now, I mean, they introduce it as a ghost from the past of a dead woman is has taken over uh, Madeline. But this is the thing that comes back over and over uh, throughout this story of things coming back, 
right? We have these uh, um, Madeline who apparently has killed herself coming back again in the form of Judy, who is in fact the same person. We have these repeating bits of the storyline that come up throughout of these, these, um, you know, bit, bits and pieces that, that play, play throughout. The story itself has some of that, but when we actually look at how this movie looks, the cinematography and how it's shot, oh boy, do you ever get the point of these repeating patterns that we see? Because we mm. see uh, them revisiting the same locations. We see them revisiting the same exact shots throughout this movie as we kind of play this out. And as you play the story forwards, you see them... Um, Revisit those locations and shots again as you feel yourself kind of going down this path. So talk to me a little bit about um, like that visual style and how that story plays out cinematically, even maybe more so than in the actual narrative. Well, I, I think that that you hit on that really well, Chris. And I, you know, one of the visual um, hallmarks of this film is uh, spirals Mm -hmm. and, you know, spirals, you know, continue to, you know, depending on which direction you're going, you know, kind of continue to go in on themselves or back out on themselves. And that is what this movie does. Those repeated shots, um, those echoes, they're not always the exact same, but you feel like you've been here before as the things spiral out of control or sort of spiral in on themselves tighter and tighter and tighter until everything kind of snaps. Well, it's, it's, I mean, they set it up right at the beginning of the movie with, um, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character nearly, nearly falling off the roof and then the police officer falling and you get that first, I mean, it's the most famous shot from this movie, that vertigo vertigo shot. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that sets up the tone for the movie is this, you know, this guy who's has this moment you see in that spiraling pattern of that cop falling to his death then repeats itself over and over. And that's a setup for his, his main issue throughout this movie, which is, I mean, I can't I, go I, up to all things. Yeah. I would argue. And, and Michael, uh, back me up here uh, that that happens even before then, because we have these opening credits from Saul Bass, yeah. who is the uh, designer of um, Hitchcock's movie posters or look, which which are iconic, even in and of themselves, and and Saul Bass uh, designed the 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 title sequence in this first film ever to use computer animation. Um, lots and lots of spirals in these opening credits, and uh, you know that that's really like taking you just really off the top. Like this is going to be a trip. Yeah, I think it. It's interesting you say that because it's there's a fine line between doing a thing, recurring themes, and it becoming a gimmick. So the like look at for instance like uh, 2001 and Space Odyssey. When you look at the whatever 29 minute sequence at the end, just because we were able to do it, should we have done it? Like there's something there about the the spinning thing that okay, so fine, we get it, let's move on. But in terms of visual. Um, like callbacks and things. I actually didn't think anything was overdone outside of some of the the spinning things. I thought there was an excellent visual aesthetics. And and it's good that you mentioned uh, Saul Bass because like this movie, 
you know, you see the influences later, like, you know, Saul Bass with Catch Me If You Can, the, the Spielberg movie, the intros, the visual aesthetics of it. You see Edith Head with uh, Incredibles and just the fact that they even like created a character after her. Like there's just incredible visual aesthetics throughout that I thought they did exceedingly well. And I never really picked up on anything negative around like, well, you know, the recurring themes. I, I just thought that it was beautifully handled. I thought this was like all the aesthetics were there from start to finish, possibly overplayed with the, the spinning. But, you know, that was such a core part of his vertigo thing. It was just more related to the pacing at the very end of the movie, like I said, around. OK, so, oh, this time you made it up the the, the winding stairs and then within 12 seconds, we wrap up the movie and it's done like that. But that's to me more to do with the, the editing and the. I mean, the I found I found some of the use of the spirals throughout. So like the, um, you know, the swirling flowers, the uh, the braids in the hair, or, uh, the bun in the hair and some of those shots as you revisit them and you feel Jimmy Stewart starting to go a little cuckoo uh, like I found those compelling and I found those added to the that sense of well i mean like he's falling into a spiral right like he's falling down this this hole and it's not making sense and he doesn't understand what's happening and as a viewer you're like i don't know what's happening right now either what is happening because i'm getting kind of lost and freaked out by all of this um but maybe it's time we take a quick break but on the other side i think we need to talk about two of the other big um elements of the cinematography here but that's you know, how how color plays into this movie and how uh, Hitchcock has uh, framed uh, and used his camera to tell part of the story here, too. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we are back and we're going to talk about color. Is everybody ready? Does everybody remember all the primary colors? Because, um, man, colors sure get used a lot in this movie. So um, maybe we can just go with that there. What did you pick up on uh, watching this movie about that use of color? Because there's two that stand out, I think. So the tell Christmas me about it. ones. Red yeah. and green. <laughs> uh, I mean, particularly green. Um that I love the way that color is used in this film uh, because it is not subtle, but then so much about this film is not subtle. Um, But the, the color in this uh, one, you know, especially today, you know, having lived through that period of time uh, where where everything was shot through, uh, you know, blue filter. I think we talked about this on the town. You know, yeah. there was a period of time where it's just like every color is muted in everything. And then, of course, you have like the Snyder verse where like everything is, you know, again, really subdued tones. And yeah. then you watch a film like Vertigo where the reds and the greens just pop so hard well and it's not just so much it's not just that they they 
pop, but like uh, in the scene when he first sees her in the restaurant, the whole restaurant is red. She's wearing green, the object of his obsession. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is in, in black, in black or right. tones. And yeah. not just that, but that moment where you, you're actually having that shot from his perspective, watching her kind of walk across the room. Not she stops and the red actually brightens like the background red. They turn it up and it just goes like deep, deep red. And you're like, OK, he is smitten. So to your point, not only does it pop, but like they play with it so intentionally to just like so overdo that sense of like, what are the emotions that are going on right now for this person? Bright red. He's in love. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And love, they, passion, obsession. Totally. Right. Well, and it's the for me, it was the the green is the obsession uh, and the red is the love. And you see those moments where characters flip what color they're wearing as it goes back and forth between them. Midge is wearing red when she tries to express her love for for Scotty, which uh, he has no part of. But like you see it bounce around throughout. But I also think like you you kind of played your hand early by saying how many times you watched this. So for someone watching it the first time, like this little bit, like watching uh, Sixth Sense and then later you go, oh, snap. Yeah, that's what Red meant uh, in this movie, because I think, you know, watching it the one time you might hone in on, well, the blonde, meaning the blonde hair and the gray and the gray suit. And there are a lot of grace and blonde going on. And then the things that you talk about are there to kind of like really, I don't know, emphasize, call out the the other things. So. If you watch it the the one time, does it work to bring all of this out? And given the fact that this was made at a time when you watch it precisely once, and even Evan, the when you were talking about it, oh yeah, me and my friends, we watched it whatever number of times. Well, la di da, like we didn't have that luxury. It showed exactly once on Swedish television channel one. And if you miss that one time, it's like you you get to watch it maybe again 20 years from now. So like it's interesting to kind of look at it from that perspective and say, you know, what do you actually pick up and what's well, the meaning of it? Say, okay, the one no, time I, versus I think 10 that, times. That that is a really good point, Michael. But I will also say that there is uh definitely you're picking things up subconsciously because you know, red being linked to love is, you know, and passion is something that is ingrained in Western culture. Green being linked to uh, sickness, poison, you know, you could take that a step further, corruption, deceit is something that sickness and poison is, you know, jealousy like that is, that is, you know, again, ingrained in Western culture. And so you see that, and something tweaks and you can get into color theory later on when you're we're watching it. You know, it's the same way that that, uh, you know, the the cinematography, the way that Hitchcock blocks his actors and his camera movements, um, the way that he plays with uh, power dynamics in in terms of like who's standing, who's seated, um, how is the shot framed, who's getting an upshot, who's getting a downshot. And so all of these things are, you know, the first time you watch it, you might not be clicking on it, but subconsciously they're telling you this person is in charge. This person is, you know, 
the 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 one of whose lower status at this moment in this scene. Oh, the power dynamics are shifted. Oh, now this person's moving in, and so they're shifting the power dynamic again. They're reeling this person in, and while you can you know go back and really bring that that eye to it later, all of that plays subconsciously as you watch it. And that is powerful. I think I think um, I, I'm definitely with Michael here, especially having watched it the first time where I struggled to get through it because I didn't love the plot. And I think it's much more interesting to watch the second time where you can ignore the plot and be more observant for these things uh, and, you know, be much more willing to be like, hold on a second. What just happened there? I'm going to go back and rewind that. Oh, n- now knowing the story that happens now, I can pick up on all of these uh, nuances because like, for example, when he sits down um, with, with his buddy Gavin uh, in the beginning, when Gavin gives him this pitch, he sits down in a room full of picture frames where it's like, okay, right. You're being literally framed for uh, the eventual <laughs> murder of this guy's wife. And it's a room full of like an insane number of picture frames. Right. Okay. I was just like, that's interesting. When I first watched it, didn't really notice it. When I come back and watch it again, I picked that up. And same as, um, um, when he starts uh, following Madeline, um, all the shots of Madeline are done through uh, are framed in a way where you're seeing her through doorways or with things in between. Right. Uh, as if it's the well, you don't have the full picture. You don't have the full understanding. There's, you know, something unseen or whatever about this character, which, again, the first time I'm like, well, Jimmy Stewart sure is a really crappy detective because he's following her really closely, like very closely. It's like I don't I think the. Again, once you know the story, you're like, oh, Gavin hired him because he's a bad detective and he's not going to figure this out. But like when you're watching the first time, you're like, this dude's just creepy and like way too close. She's going to find him. But every shot of her is through these, um, you know, doorways or whatever, where again, it's like you don't fully see everything just as he doesn't see everything that's coming for him. But I don't pick that up on the first watch. The first watch was tough. Uh, and this is where I'd say like, Hey, if you want to go study this thing and you really want to get into the, the, the cinematography and how to visually tell a story and you want to dig deep on it, this is a great movie. If you want to have a good Friday night movie, uh, I don't know. I actually think it's a brilliant point you're touching on to say, you know, up to this point, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, what was your reaction watching this movie? Did you enjoy it? Would you recommend it? Once we start to get into the territory of, you know what, after I watched it four times because I had to because of this podcast, or I did it because of film school, that's a whole different topic, I think. So I, I think we need to be very honest and, to talk about that. And, and that's why I, I kind of said this. I kind of made it up, but it's sort of true that the first 80% of the movie Watching it the one time after 38 years, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was brilliant. I really liked what they're going for. And then I went into this, holy snap, what's what's happening now? Like this turned into a whole different movie. And I think that that's an important context for people to be, you know, if you're watching this for the first time, uh, what might your experience be depending on where you're coming from watching it now in 2023 versus when it was made. Um, and if you're really committed to it, while well, you can dig deeper and, and get a true appreciation for why this has later become such a, you know, like a, a, a plotted movie, but that might not be what you see the very first time you watch it, because you're going to see 
one thing. And if you dig deeper, there are these other things that you. I agree. I think that's a a really good point, Michael. I I agree as well. This is uh, to your point, watching this the first time in 2023, uh, I think most people will find it uh, a a, a difficult watch uh, to say the least. I think upsetting, um, you know, kind of gross and uh maybe the hot take on on this one is that this is like this is the the psychotic version of my fair lady <laughs> yeah right <laughs> right yeah crafting somebody in the image that you want them to be except so creepy yeah i i i will say that um i, I think that's right. And I think it partly goes back to why do you watch movies? And I think in the same way that we talked about, I mean, we watched in Bruges not too long ago and we were saying, Hey, you know, you watch this again, you pick up more of those things that you didn't, you know, necessarily connect the dots on, on the first watching. I think this is true of this movie as well, except that much more so, right. Especially because it's the visual storytelling that's going on, which you, I, I didn't catch on the first time through. So it's really partly just why you want to go watch a movie, Right. I also think like, look, Evan's point to imagine this as a musical, like them doing all of this. And then they suddenly break into song. I rescued you from the river. And we like, imagine what kind of a movie this would have been. Uh, Can I make it up the tower? No, I cannot. Yes, I can. No, I cannot. Oh, you remind me like (laughs) this would have been such an incredible movie. Like, I feel like this is just such a musical corner was brought to you by. (laughs) I mean, is it, do we, do we approach the Hitchcock estate and and ask for the rights so that we can do vertigo, the the musical? I maybe, maybe. So maybe maybe this is a good time to to ask the question. Um, this is a, a really interesting choice for movie from Jimmy Stewart. Like Jimmy Stewart, he'd worked with uh, Hitchcock before on Rear Window, like you said before, Evan. But I mean, otherwise, Jimmy Stewart was a guy who was making comedies. He was making westerns. Like the best analogy I I, I could give is like this would be the equivalent of um, Tom Hanks showing up in like uh, uh, Cape Fear. Yeah, I was going to say like seven as yeah. uh, or like, yeah, something like that. We're just like, this is a really weird zag for this, like every man, totally relatable character to suddenly be this obsessive, like nasty character. So talk to me a little bit about what you thought of Jimmy Stewart's performance in this. I mean, I thought his performance was was really good. And, and you know, we talked about how Hitchcock blamed Stewart for the failure of the film because of the age gap between, uh, you know, himself and, and uh, Kim Novak. I actually thought that there was some real chemistry between the two of them. From what I've read, they they were lovely with each other on set Um yeah, they uh, worked well. together again after this too. Yeah, and you know, like the the other thing too is that that I guess that age gap didn't really enter my mind because it was I was like, okay, nineteen fifties, and also the 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 buddy Gavin that he went to school with. He's like, yeah, you know, I want you to follow my wife. So you've already set up like there's an old dude, yeah. with this like you know, that, that's, that's married this into woman, like a, yeah. a shipping family. Um, so when, when, you know, they f- fall for each other and I use that in insert of quotations because she's acting at the time, um, 
it, it didn't ring false for me. If that makes sense, I completely agree. Like I think, I think it is a hundred percent believable because it is in the context of precisely what you said. The older man, he's going to take care of someone, and that's precisely why she she agrees to do this thing in the first place. She felt, you know, here's someone is going to take care of me. All I have to do is this one thing, and then he will take care of me because he said he he loves me. So it's like that is the whole premise of the thing. So it's entirely believable to me that Jimmy Stewart would then be that person because he's there to protect her, right? Like it's not really the the whole notion of love is kind of like thrown out early on. It's more about an obsession. It's more about him doing a thing. So I actually think that makes perfect sense. The second thing is like, of course he would have picked this role. Like he did rear window. He did um, uh, like he he's worked with Hitchcock uh, several times before. If someone approaches you and says, Scorsese approaches uh, anyone and says, oh, you want to do a movie? You can be like, yes, yes, please. I, I like that. It doesn't matter what you but, but could want you see, to do. Of could you see Tom yes. Hanks jumping into like The Departed or something like that? Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Like, I, I, think, I think it might be more like um, Tom Hanks when he did um, Philadelphia. It's kind of saying like you're doing something that's different for you. Um, whether it is like entirely turns out to be, you know, on brand, but like something that's different. But I, so I'd say, I'd say might- by the end of this, Jimmy Stewart's character, like at the end scene, going up the bell tower, going on that like epic rant that is very meta about like, did he train you? Did he like, and it's like, did he like model you the way he wanted you? And it's like, he's going on that rant and like half choking her and dragging her up the tower. You're like, wow, Jimmy Stewart. This is not the Jimmy Stewart I was expecting. Like, wow. Right. I no, no, I completely agree. I'm just saying that in terms of him agreeing to do this role and doing the best, it's like, Okay, so what do you receive in the mail? You receive a thing saying, here's a script. It's Hitchcock wanting to do a thing with these people. You're going to say yes. The second you say yes, you're going to do your best job. And I think that that's what he did. So like, I I would never in a billion years uh, blame him for doing this. And then maybe by the time you get to page 209, you go, oh, hang on. Uh, That's not Jim Stewart. Wait a second here. Um, but, But you've already said... Like, look, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do the best job I, I can. So I, I would never in a million years fall. No, him for, I think he's great. This. I, I think, think it was a smart choice. And I think he did exactly It's the just best. a very big deviation and like kudos for him, especially because this is this is one of two movies, I think, in his career that are like, you know, dark and creepy and not on par with like, you know, Western hero or beloved, uh, you know, every man who everybody can relate to. Like, I think what he does so well here is bring that creep factor where by the end of the movie, you're just like cringing with everything this guy is doing. Yeah. So, so don't get me wrong. Like I, I thought one of the things that he says, it was just like the, it was the creepiest thing. Cause he said, I need you to be Madeline for a while and when we're done you'll be free and it's like that is like the creepiest weirdest hostage killer thing that you could possibly say so that's for me when i say 80 percent of the movie i mean i don't mean on average i mean the first 80 percent of the movie and then it takes a turn and it becomes a different movie where you go like snap like what's this cape fear this is just like this is weird um and it's not on brand for him even within the context of the movie but yeah, 
I still think it was a brilliant choice for him to make. Everyone involved, I think that they had a chance to act really well. It's just that it falls apart in the end for me, where I went like this, that this didn't lead right. up it's to a that. little much but i mean there, there's lots of other movies where i think that that break in the third act goes bonkers and and you're like okay i get it you've chosen to make a crazy left turn here i i didn't necessarily follow it quite as well but i think you're right michael there i mean this is a cast of very limited number of people right i mean ostensibly it's Stuart and novak are the main like 80 percent plus of oh, this they movie are, they are carrying this thing that's right and i think they both do uh an admirable admirable job and then you've got um uh midge and gavin who who play you know the other 20 percent, along with some people who have some lines yeah, and are yeah, throwaway, there, right? there is a the asshole judge who has five percent of the film because that is a that is a monologue that he delivers yes. and a nonsensical one at that where it's like wait what we're pinning this all in man this is the is this what the law was actually like in the 50s because this is insane um but yeah i mean i think i think um it is a fascinating movie, especially when it's just driven by the performance of these two people for so much of it. Um, one thing I definitely want to touch on before we we get into some of the questions that I had was the sound in this movie um, mm. and the score of this movie, because it's unique. It's it's great. I mean, Michael will probably have more to say about this than than I do because, you know, he makes the music for this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, all music by Michael Hansen. Um, but uh, you know, Bernard Herman, uh John Williams before John Williams. Um, I could and I could I, I, all those like long driving scenes where you're, you know, riding shotgun with uh with Jimmy Stewart tailing uh, Kim Novak uh, poorly, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I didn't want to turn off the the sound like you did, Chris, because I just want to listen to the Bernard Herrmann uh, score. It's he, it's so good, even though he ended up hating it because of the musician strike. Uh, so he wasn't able to um, conduct the orchestra like he usually did. He's very hands on. uh, uh composer and um conductor but it's great it's 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 so good all everything that herman does i just really enjoy it's funny you mention uh john williams because like when i was thinking around later movies that have had these influences i i already mentioned catch me if you can because of the, the striking visuals the intro that like brilliantly captured this era uh, but the music has a different uh, spin in that one. It's more playful. It's more dramatic. This really digs into, I think, more the the emotional side. And I'm gonna say I didn't I didn't love it. I respected what it was doing. I thought it set the mood, but there's not enough for it to kind of stand out. Like there's not a. Uh, this is gonna sound terrible, but it's more like a, a, one of these big Marvel movies where it's more like a background mood, more so than. You know, I could not tell you a single score of a theme or everything going on in this. It's nothing memorable like from Psycho or anything where you go, oh, yeah, that thing. It just it's a mood. The mood was incredibly well done, but it, it wasn't it wasn't sort of like a score where I would say, oh, yeah, that that thing. You have to go back and listen to that every day of your life for the next 23 years. So I think it was competent, but it did not leave a mark the same way as many other movies would have for me. So 
before we go, I've got a few questions after watching this movie. So the first is, did each of you catch Hitchcock's appearance in the movie? Oh, yeah. Yes, I did. Right before. Uh, oh, so, did, Michael, did you? Okay. No, I did not. No, I was waiting for you, you to say like, yes. Yeah, and then I could too. have said, oh, yes, <laughs> oh, that yeah. one. Totally. Uh, yeah, I. Yeah. I looked for it because, you know, I, I'm so keenly aware that he would do like the uh, um, the Jackson thing in uh, Lord of the Rings of like chewing a character, doing a thing. But no, I, I did not. In, uh, so the the uh, establishing shot of the outside of of Gavin's shipping office when uh, Jimmy Stewart walks in before that big um, section of I'm in an office full of frames. I'm about to be framed. Hitchcock is, uh, is there. He, he crosses. Yeah. uh, Right before Jimmy Steer walks in. Yeah. yeah. So um, famously Hitchcock never received. So this movie received no Oscar nominations, no recognition. Um, Jimmy Stewart received an Oscar prior in his career, but he didn't receive anything, any recognition for this. Uh, If you had one Oscar to give out for this film, what would it be for? Oh, cinematography, probably. It ends up being pretty influential uh, in, in in the world of cinematography. I have to agree. Like, I think this movie, the acting is terrific. The, the writing for much of it is terrific, but it really is held together by the shots, like just how they frame certain things, how they pan certain things, how they show the, the golden great gate bridge, the, the big trees. Like It's just stunning. So I think that that probably to me more than anything uh, really stands out and, and should have. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't know that I would go all the way up to best director or anything for Hitchcock, but definitely the cinematography here stands out. Yeah, we're not we're not giving best adapted screenplay, I think is is, is, <laughs> That's is right. the general consensus here. Um oh, best hair possibly, best hair because that obsession to detail. No, it's not quite right. You know, it should have been pinned back. Like that obsession of detail, like you know, that by itself Jimmy Stewart should have gotten the award for best hair and makeup. <laughs> <laughs> um so an interesting question then because uh, I mean as we talked about uh, early on in this, there's a big disparity between this, how this is initially received and how it's perceived today. I mean, it moved to the number one movie on the sight and sound uh, list, which is voted on by directors and filmmakers and people who are in the industry. And they put it all the way as the number one movie for a good two, two decades. It's still number two on that list. What do you think is the, the, the reason for that disparity between that initial kind of perception of this movie and now it's viewed as one of his greatest and one of the greatest of all times. I all I have to say is how the heck did the critics miss this? You know, like what was it about that they how did you miss this critics? <laughs> you you it came out, you didn't see it, you didn't appreciate it. I think that's been a bit of a theme, right? To say like there was something there that had such a specific statement and maybe it wasn't marketed right. Maybe people have different expectations about what uh sort of a movie that Jimmy Stewart would be in. But there's something there to kind of say you have a unique perspective. You're doing a very specific thing and people just don't, they're not ready for it. They don't, they don't get it. But given time and then later you have a chance to re-release it and reintroduce it. People go, oh yeah, that. I'm going to force my film students to watch it eight times uh, before they get a passing grade. Um, 
then yeah, it gets popularity. And Evan, you never explained, did you rent that or did you steal it or like, you know? Uh, no, no. Yeah, uh, yeah, I want to hear uh, that story. We, we, we bought it on VHS. Yeah. Yeah, that's we, a very likely uh, story. We found it at, uh, we found it at, at the uh, Salvation Army in the, uh, in the bargain bin. And, uh, and we, you know, we paid whatever it was, a, a buck 50 for it and watched it on VHS. So there you go. Hey, Evan, same question to you. Like, why, why do you think there's this disparity between, you know, the 1958 release and the 2023, you know, one of the best movies ever? No, I think, I think it's a, a, a really good question, Chris. Um, I think that that you know there is a certain amount of uh, you know cult status around Hitchcock, um, you know by the time this gets its re-release that people can do the rewatching, and I think that that's something that that has come up again and again in this podcast is oh I really enjoyed this again on the rewatching. And, you know, picked yeah. up more on the rewatching and, you know, really this does become a bit of a masterclass in its rewatching in terms of the cinematography and the use of, um, you know, the colors and, uh, you know, hair, makeup, wardrobe and, and all of those things you, you when you start deconstructing them you go like oh wow this is this is really interesting let's see how like how did hitchcock put that shot together and how did he put that shot together and oh that's that's awesome i love the way that he caught the golden gate bridge yeah. you know at, at that at that hour and oh man that looks so good and and the deeper and deeper you get into that, I can see that, you know, that that becomes sort of a self-perpetuating spiral. And yeah. and so suddenly you've got this film that, you know, just didn't quite work for an audience at the time. But now people are going like, this is super influential. If you really want to understand how to do fill in the blank, if you really want to understand how to choreograph a shot uh, or choreograph a scene, you need to watch the, uh, the, the first scene with Gavin and Scotty, you know, and, and just watch the way that the camera moves and the way that the actors move. And it shows you so much in how to do this. And it's not, that subtle, which is also kind of helpful when you're when you're trying to come at it from sort of like a, a didactic point of view, because, you know, you watch like explainer videos on like, oh, look, this is what, uh, you know, in Silence of the Lambs, like all of these really subtle movements that show you who's in control of the scene. You've got all of that in Hitchcock done much less subtly because it is earlier in cinematic history, but it, because it's done less subtly, you can kind of understand it better. Right. Yeah. And I think you mentioned earlier about the, the music thing, and it's interesting to do a contrast with her to say, when you go back and listen to these seminal tracks and albums that were made, you know, 50 years ago, some of it was uh, a direct result of the technology that was available, and some of it was was a result of the choices you made. 
And it's so interesting to piece it apart to kind of say, why did they do what they did? And it's a real clue to understanding music now. So like from that perspective, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like it's just, it's valuable to look at. I don't know if people were maybe <clears throat> more ready to view the Jimmy Stewart um, uh, descent into kookiness <clears throat> with the same lens that maybe we were, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, you know, like now into 2023, viewing that as like, oh, he's not just awful, but this is saying something more important about the rest of us. But I also think the biggest part of this kind of rising up the ranks was, like you were saying, Evan, it's the home video. Right. Suddenly you can go rewind this thing and watch the same shot 17 times uh, rather than having to sit through the theater and then go back and pay full price again. And, you know, it's, it's a different experience when you're watching it at home on your couch. Right. So one of the questions I do have here is, you know, this is on a top 10 movie on the American Film Institute list. This is uh, number two on the sight and sound list. For each of you, is this a movie that you is like a you know top ten masterpiece all time movie for you? No, <laughs> like and, and yeah, we're done. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, folks. I like I no. This, I mean, I, for me, for me, this is not a top ten movie. And you know, like there are movies in my top ten that people would be like, the fuck. Like Empire Records, Empire Records. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I understand that that some people don't love the movies I love and that's OK. Just like it's OK if somebody was like, well, my favorite movie is Vertigo. And I'd be like, OK, cool. I really appreciate that movie. But no, this is this is not in my top 10. How about you, Michael? Couldn't agree more. Like, I think that there's a distinction between two types of things. One is. Movies that there's a number of movies you watch in a lifetime, um, uh, music albums you listen to that shape who you are and the, the super valuable input that you would never live without because it like they help to shape who I am. It falls into that category, but it's not one of my top tens. Like I, I would, I, there's nothing about this I would say, oh yeah, those things. But I do think that this is one of those that you know, in a collection of everything that you watch in your lifetime, helps to shape your opinion a little bit, helps to nudge it, helps to think about you know you, how you think around movies differently. But certainly not one of my top tens, um, not at all. How about you, Chris? I mean, I, I think it goes back to because we touched on it earlier, like why do you watch movies? Right. And like sometimes it's fun for me to dig into the like the intellectual side of that and oh, how they did it that way. And oh, look, these themes are playing out again visually. Uh, like I think this is a movie that I'll be excited to revisit at some point to see if I can notice more and pull more out of that. But like, I'm, am I that person watching movies most of the time? No. And like for me, this wasn't that fun a movie to watch. Like I said, I fell asleep watching this the first time. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's a very, it can be a very intellectual pursuit if you want it to be, if that's why you watch movies, uh, you know, and that, that, that's why I'd understand why Scorsese and professional filmmakers look at this as, um, you know, a thing that got them started down their path because it is, uh, you know, ripe with all of these great examples of fine cinematic, you know, um, movie making, but yeah, like I'm, I'm not excited to go back and rewatch this on Friday. Yeah. I think that to, to Michael's point earlier, like, uh, in the, the whole conversation, like this is a great film class movie, right? 
Yeah. Great film sit, class movie. To sit down with people who want to pull apart every single piece of it and talk about it in detail and like, absolutely. And I think you would get more every time you rewatch this mm-hmm. movie. So I'm excited to give it some time and come back to it again and see what I think of it. But like, yeah, this isn't going to crack my, my top 10 list of things that I want to go back to on a regular basis. And that's probably a good place to call it. So that's what we thought about Vertigo. Uh, And we'd love to know what you thought about this movie. You know, did you think it was a classic or maybe not quite as great as everybody said? You can find us on Twitter and let us know at how did you miss this? That's HDYMT underscore pod. And while you're there, do us a favor. Take a look at some of the movies we're planning on watching soon. Send us any questions or thoughts that you might have that you want us to cover on the show. And hey, while you're there on the interwebs, maybe you can take a second, rate, review, subscribe, do the clickety clicks on on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening to this. Uh, And we are going to be back next week. We're going to be watching Platoon, and we're going to see if this war drama is still one of the best war movies around or whether it's a movie that should have stayed missed. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you then. Translated from Alien, that's Evan Toller Hickey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As always with his human puppeteers, Krista Shane and Michael Hansen. That's the intro we should actually save for when we do like Mars attacks or something. Yeah. Like. <laughs>